Hello, this is your old pal Slim, and I'm here with my old pal Gemma, and welcome to a special Magic Hour brought to you by The Letterbox Show. Magic Hour is our video series that has lived primarily on YouTube, and it features two filmmakers having a conversation with each other. As we prepare for the big return of The Letterbox Show and interviewing folks about their four favorite films, we thought this might be a fun time to share an audio version of those Magic Hour conversations that we've really enjoyed with two very talented people. On one side, we have Mark Jenkin, the writer and director of Ennis, Maine, which follows a wildlife volunteer on an uninhabited island off the British coast, and it descends into a terrifying madness as she loses grip on reality. On the other side, we have Kyle Edward Ball, director, writer, and editor of Skinnamarink, the experimental horror that all your friends were watching, and that is now available on Shudder. In the conversation, they talk about how they both shoot their movies without sound, adding that later. And they talk about some of their favorite films from The Exorcist to 2001, A Space Odyssey to Pender's Fen. Does Top Gun come up at all in this conversation? Not at all. I'm sorry to say, Slim, not at all. But I think you'll still enjoy it. I think you'll still dig this conversation. Absolutely. And if you're listening and you dig this conversation, let us know. Subscribe to our YouTube, Letterboxd. And keep an eye out for the big brand new season of Four Favorites coming very soon. Okay, well, um, to start, my name is Kyle Edward Ball. I directed the experimental horror movie Skin and Marink. It was released this year in January in the Shattered Territories. And I'm Mark Jenkin, and I am the director of the film Ennis Main, which uh, opened in the UK on the 13th of January and is opening in the US on the 30th. 1st of March. I saw the trailer, I think it was some point last year, and thinking, oh, there's weird similarities between your movie and mine. Like, they're both, like, yours is set in the 70s, but my, so my movie, it, like, it is done to mimic the look of the 70s, and yours was shot on film to look, look like the 70s, and also, that's my cat. And also, all the audio was done motor out of sync, so as either, like, ADR or post, right? Yeah. Did you do your audio all in post? That yeah, like, all the, dial, all the dialogue was recorded as ADR, and all the Foley sound effects are all, like, just from catalog with a few exceptions. I had to do my own folio of footsteps because we all know footsteps are a pain to get to read. And yeah. 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 Same. I, I do it all here on this bench is where I edit and I do. Yeah. All I did the same. They, over there. The, the computer I'm, I'm zooming from is what I edited my movie on to. So. Yeah. I should say I saw, I watched your movie last night. So it's okay. very, it's very fresh and, you know, really, really fresh. Stayed with me all night. I'm yeah, same. Still there this morning. Like, my partner, yeah. my partner didn't make it through it. She, yeah. Well, she did actually, it turned out she did watch it, but she got up and said she couldn't handle the tension anymore. She went and brushed her teeth and got ready to go for be to bed. But she was actually very quietly in the room behind and she was still watching. I was watching it on the big screen in our house. And so she didn't okay. see it, but she oh. she said to me afterwards, she wanted to watch it from a bit of a distance because she felt oh. so claustrophobic. 
Oh, that's so nice. Well, tell her thank you. Yeah. So both Enos Main and Skin and Rake were filmed using limited budgets and take place in a contained world. What about this scope sparks your creativity or like more likely like I I always said, you know, I had these kind of rules and, and limitations set up in place. And once I had those, like it felt like the whole thing kind of opened up. So could you could you speak to that, so to speak? Yeah, I, I, that's exactly the same for me. You know, it's you've got to have those limitations to have the freedom. Once you've set your boundaries and you can do anything within those boundaries, I think that's exactly what I like to do. And watching your movie last night, I just said to Mary, my partner, I just said, this is genius because you've set all of these limitations which play to the strengths of what you're doing. And, you know, to have two young kids as the leads, that's difficult to get a consistent performance. But if you do everything ADR, you know, you can create that performance in a much more controlled environment afterwards, can't you? And, you know, showing showing them in fragments as well without really seeing faces. I just, as soon as it started, before the atmosphere really got hold of me, I just thought this is, this is just brilliant because this is all about the limitations, which is the way that I work. You know, I don't, I would never do anything if I had complete freedom. You know, I, I would always imagine a, a more glorious way of doing it, but it's, I, I like, I like the limitations. And as I move further on, there's, there's kind of less and less limitations so that the limitations have to be imposed consciously. A lot of the limitations are kind of artificial and, and a lot of them come from the, the kit that I choose to use. So I, I can't record sync dialogue with the camera that I use. So. It's never even a consideration. I, and I don't, I don't understand why anybody ever records sync sound. Yeah. Like I thought, I thought that during the filming too, like I liked to set it up so that it felt like they were actually there. And even more so for like, like my DOP, right? In the general mood of the cast and crew, like when we filmed a few scenes, it felt eerie and quiet and I, I felt like that showed on screen and you can you can play with the camera so much more if you're not worrying if you compartmentalize the sound and okay we'll have a day for the sound that'll be a different day or a different time of day but like you can just go nuts worrying about the camera and I think that shows in your movie so much because it's like objectively incredibly gorgeous like it like the setting definitely helped obviously so the island i was curious too because when i was watching it is it actually filmed on like that island no no we never we never went to that island we never stepped foot on it we got the wide shot i knew what island it was going to be and it's it's west wales so it's it's very similar to where I am in West Cornwall Mm -hmm. but it's a it's a different country and it's it's a long drive to get there but sort of in terms of geology, it's a very similar landscape. And so I knew that we would use that island for the establishing shot. And I had, I'd never been there, but I had pictures of it. And so I used that as the blueprint for building the fragments of the locations around here, which again was a brilliant, another location, another limitation, because I would go to locations around here, which were great. But then I'd refer back to the picture of the wide shot of the island and say, well, that location wouldn't realistically be on that island. So just ruling stuff out over and over and over again and, and you're left with just the core of, uh, of what you need. So we, we then went and actually filmed the, the moving image of the, the island, the actual the footage that's in the film. We filmed that much later. After principal photography and after we had quite a tight edit, I think we then went back and, and, and just shot 
five five wide shots of the island, just a 100-foot roll of film, I think, we used on that. So again, it was just like a real, those limitations are just, they're, they're everything really. And and I think that's the that's the key, isn't it? It's like building building the world out of out of fragments, and a lot of that is fragments of sound as well, which I think your your film did so brilliantly. You know, what's so terrifying about your film and so unnerving, which I think is what drove my partner away from it, was how the sense of an outside world is absent. There there, there is no sense. There's an outside outside world, and I think I could. Ima- I mean, I don't know where the house was i don't know you know where you where you shot that but i imagine that that spell that you sort of cast the isolation of the house would have been really compromised if you captured sound outside the house for example you know stuff coming in through windows and doors and stuff like that which is what we did you know the the abandoned house that we used as the exterior it was really important that that felt isolated and the only house on the island but really just to the left of the frame is a really busy farm yeah. And to the right is quite a famous landmark that a lot of people go and visit. So actually, it's really noisy while we were there. And it's very easy to frame out the farm and the people visually because you just set the shot without those elements in the shot. But you can't frame out sound. You know, we would have, we'd yeah. still be filming it. We'd still be filming it now if we were, if we'd shot sync sound, still be waiting for the silence, still be waiting for the next airplane to, disappear all of that kind of stuff so there's an interesting way your movie plays with like just kind of isolation and at the beginning of the movie it it almost has a kind of cozy pastoral feel to it like the really her only connections with the outsider through the radio and then towards the end like you've you almost completely forget that there's a world outside of this island and her little notebook and her flower. And then there's a part towards the end where there's like a helicopter and it kind of, it's a kind of jarring thing. Like, oh yeah, there's a world outside of this island. I thought that was so interesting. We wanted that yeah. to be a big, a big moment. And that's all kind of done with, with sound. I wanted it to be mono. It's not actually mono. It's, it's stereo, but it's very centered. And then when the helicopter turns up, it goes five one all around the theater again so it's another example of how much you can do with the sound and in fact we didn't have the shot of the helicopter until a few days before the edit was locked because it was the coast guard and we needed a modern helicopter we needed the most up-to-date helicopter so we we were talking to the coast guard here and it took a long time for them to to agree to do it they weren't obstructive or anything it was just a lot of process to go through and I'd actually resign myself to the fact that we weren't going to get a shot of the helicopter. So it was all designed with sound and you were never, we were never going to see it. So that's why so much thought had gone into the sound as a, as a kind of, as, as a plan B. And then at the last minute, they, they agreed to come down and do a flyby. So they sort of flew over and we, I just shot the shit out of everything as they flew around. Yeah. I didn't know what, what, what was going to work and what wasn't going to work. It didn't take me out of the air at all either. Like, just because a, I don't really have in my mind, this is what a 70s helicopter looks like, uh, let alone this is what a Coast Guard from the UK helicopter looked like. Like, and also... <laughs> Specific. Yeah, and also with color grading and context, I just saw a helicopter. I wasn't like, oh, that's a super modern helicopter or anything. 
So a big thing with both our movies too is like on top of just the generic of like, oh, this is an experimental movie is they're both like clearly from the get-go designed to be up for interpretation. Up for interpretation is thrown around a lot. This is even farther than that as far as the audience. It's just the movie's almost like music, right? Like it, it's not imposing a narrative on you. It's just kind of giving you hints and flowing. And then whatever the audience decides to think is up to them. And even farther than that, like people say, oh, it's upper interpretation, it's upper interpretation. But really, you don't even need to interpret anything to enjoy it. Like, what's wrong with just having images and sound, right? So, just feel it. Yeah, just feel it like music, which is like, so there's obviously kind of the bones of a story, like a woman's on it island presumably some sort of scientist and i thought it was so neat too like really as far as a scientist goes she really appears she has one regimented job which is to note the progress of a a flower right Um, simple simpler life yeah yeah well and that's that's again how it starts the movie feels so cozy right like she's got her tea She's got a radio and, and then just weird stuff starts flowing into that, right? And was that something that from the get-go you wanted to have like, oh, I want to do a movie that the audience really has to do the heavy lifting and and I just sort of, yeah. I, I th- no, I don't think so. I, I just think I may, you know, I follow my gut with these things yeah. when I'm writing and I, I mean, it won't be a big surprise. I don't overwrite my script. Yeah. I like films that are, I've made sense of this in my head through doing Q and A's and trying to sort of talk about my approach. And I think, I think what it is when, when I'm a viewer, I like films that are very simple in terms of story and really complicated thematically. And the films that I don't connect with are the ones that are complicated plots and a very simple theme. Without sounding like a wanker, I try, I always read stuff into things as I'm watching it all the time. And so if there's a really complicated plot and I should just be sat taking in the plot and it's A to B to C to D, I'm not, I'm thinking, oh, what does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? And then by the time it gets to C to D, I don't, I've, I've lost it all, you know, and I watch stuff with my stepson and, and, and I'll just, within two minutes, I'm like, Who, what's going on? Who's that character? And he's like, could I something? And it's just all gone because I'm, you know, it does sound so pretentious, but I'm, I'm always looking under the surface of stuff more, I think. And and so that's what that's what happens when I when I write and when I make stuff. You know, the, the, the Bresson quote that I really love is that it, it's better to feel a film than to understand a film. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I swear I've heard that from him too. And I've always kind of lived by... Well, with me, it was... So I really appre- appreciate Bresson's ideas and stuff but i i think it was more i think kubrick said something similar like to me that i've always took like mo- movies should be like music it shouldn't be like a play or, or maybe brisson says something so i don't know i, I think derek jarman said something similar as yeah so 
Another thing too, I noticed when the title card comes up, it has the traditional 70s, like this is the copyrighted year in the bottom text. And I think, I don't know if yours said in color, but my mine said ink, but like a similar thing. And it's little details like that that are so, so I want to know, was there a specific reason? Cause I have my own thing. I know mine was set in the 90s, but it's, it's obviously pretty much a 70s movie, right? So, like, why did you pick the era of the 70s? Specifically, the, like, it's the early 70s, right? It's 73, 74. Yeah. So, culturally, yeah. it's kind of almost the 60s, really, still. Yeah. And the look is still, could be the, could be the 60s. I, I think it was, um, well, it needed to predate easy communication, because that's one thing, you know, that I'm writing, I'm writing something at the moment that's, that's really reliant on, on the internet not existing. So I've had, I've said it just before the internet because it is like a mystery thing. And, you know, now the character would just Google something and that, you know, two minutes into the film, they'd Google it and go, oh, right. And then the credits would roll. <laughs> the mystery yeah. would be solved. So there was the same with that with Ennis Bain that it was, that it needed to predate that. And I, and I mean, it's just, you know, going on to influence, I suppose, is is um it's that era that I, I really love, you know, those nineteen seventies. And especially in the UK, you know, some of it some of it's actually TV that influences that's influenced me here. But it's but it was when the television in the UK was the TV production was so cinematic. You know, seventies yeah. TV in the UK was kind of more cinematic than most cinema is these days. So I wanted to, I wanted it to be in, in that era. And then this always sounds frivolous when I say it, but I, I knew that the, the year was going to be written a lot. And I really like the way the year 1973 looks when it's written. Mm-hmm. So that was a, it was a, it was an aesthetic thing. Um, and then people have said, you know, I've read people saying that it's, it was a, it was a reference to Don't Look Now and the, and the Wickham. Uh, so. Again, mine's set in 95 and I picked 95 just because I was four that I was four years old that year. And that was kind of a magical time before kindergarten for me. And also it was like just just before we got the Internet in my house, like the Internet had existed, but it didn't exist for a lower middle class family like ours. In my idea of crafting the look, I had the year 1972 in my mind. And the original trailer, I had like a a little flash of in theaters 1972. And then it changes to uh, 2002. And then IFC changed it to in theaters 1973, changes it to 2023. The reason I picked 72 in my mind was because that was one year before The Exorcist came out, right? Yeah. I don't I don't know why, but I just it was that landmark. And so UK television, like what can you give some examples from the 70s that were in your mind? Yeah, I mean there's there was a thing like a series called Played for Today. It was almost like it was writer led in a lot of in a lot of ways. So it was quite anti not anti cinema, but it wasn't it wasn't in that cinematic tradition of it being director-led. It was more writer-led, but they used to create these TV movies that would get one screening and a, and a repeat and then sort of disappear. 
And they're all now been reissued on Blu-ray by the BFI and stuff like that because they're thought of as kind of classics. But the, I mean, the one for me that's a that's a big um, influence is a film called Pender's Fen. Oh yeah, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. I've, Alan Clark. Yeah, yeah. And I love I love it because um, which is just you see him. Oh, like I've never seen it, but just the images are so fucking striking. <laughs> like yeah, and it's such it's such an anomaly in his filmography. And if you read what he said about it, he said, you know, he, he didn't really understand it. He didn't really understand the the screenplay, but he made it because he, you know, because he felt it. And that was, I thought that's incredible. Even the director doesn't really get yeah. it. Or maybe got it once, once he was, um, you know, once he was looking at it. What are your sort of reference points? Oh, for the well, film? did you have any? Coming into horror... Think like obviously a lot of seventies horror, so Black Christmas, The Exorcist, Don't Look Now, like and kind of even more obscure stuff that you wouldn't or not obscure, but you wouldn't necessarily think it lends itself to. Like two thousand and one, A Space Odyssey, which is my mm-hmm. favorite movie, is so embedded into me that there's like parts like there's so many shots where it's a hallway, right? And there's so much of 2001 A Space Odyssey in that, you know, the the 572 days shot where it's the messy hallway. We just pull up, pull up, pull up. That's um, the ending of Tarkovsky's Solaris, where he's on the, the island and it just keeps pulling out and out and out and out. Have you seen the stone tape? So I haven't been seen the stone tape, but I've seen clips and I know about... It's in the computer. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Or they, um, oh, he's got the, the, stone tape memorabilia here. I've got this. I've got the, the BBC radiophonic workshop box set of CDs. And it's got nice. There's a bonus. It's got the soundtrack of the stone tape, which is just something else. If you listen to that, it's just, I mean, it's all, you know, it's all in keeping with the, with the with the content of the of the play, you know, but it's um yeah, really of its time and I, I love the unsubtlety of it. Yeah. If that's what the The seventies I've always felt was always two things in confluence at once. So I, I with Hollywood movies from the seventies, because of things like Watergate and post Vietnam War, it was always cynicism and optimism at the same time, kind of in confluence. So like a movie like The Wiz. It's mm-hmm. the Wizard of Oz, so it's obviously very optimistic, but the aesthetic of it is all about urban decay, right? And you see that a lot in, in the UK media too, right? But in the UK, it's 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 subtlety and melodrama kind of in confluence, right? So did you say that you only shot with the kids for a day? Only one day. So we did the first day... We had all the kids' camera work. Then we did all the ADR in the living room. Then we did the dad's ADR. Then we did his camera work. And that was the first day. And outside of that, the rest of it was us just filming the house. With the only exception being on day four, we did the mother's camera work and ADR, which was like a third of the shooting day. So, And how many days shoot? Seven days, eight days if you count the camera test. I like to include the camera test because I was 29 when the we I we did the camera test. Then I had my 30th birthday like a day after. So I get to say if we include the camera test that I, I did my first feature in my 20s, right? 
<laughs> yeah. It's incompletely artificial, though. Yeah, no, that's yeah. fun. Yeah, well, I had my birthday in the middle of our shoot as well. Okay. It always, I, I, I always end up shooting in March, so it always happens. You filmed in March? Yeah. And it, the weather was really, seemed really... Well, no, wait, that's not, because it gets really cold at night. Where where we are, it just rains all the time here. Okay. And we we shot for 21 days over four weeks. And we didn't have a single bit of rain for the entire oh, shoot. Wow. And I don't know what, I don't know what happened. I don't know. No, we did a deal. We did a deal with the devil somewhere along the line. But what we did have was really strong winds for the whole time, which was difficult to shoot in. But visually, when you look at the film, yeah, great. Cause everything it, moving. Like, it's almost like, did you kind of, were you kind of hoping for wind? No, I mean, the, the thing is with the weather here, just kind of pray that you're not going to get any rain. That or, or 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 you don't get or you get enough sort of patches between the rain to be able to shoot. So the weather's so so kind of well, it's predictable and unpredictable at the same time. You can start off in the morning and it's and it's and it's dry, and during the day you might have re- like five rainstorms, and then by the evening the sun's out again. It's very difficult to predict it. And in fact, the what we did a day in the studio with the with the stunt with the stunt woman falling through the roof. Yeah. And um, on that day, we had every weather. We went inside the studio and it rained and we had hail and sleet and snow and everything. And then as soon as we came out of the studio in the evening, it, it had all stopped again. So it was like Mother Nature. It's incredibly got it ironic. Yeah, it's like all the weather that you missed while you were outside came to the studio shoot. <laughs> yeah. And we were, you know, such a, that was my birthday that day. It was such a joyous day because normally... Because I operate the camera, I'm normally so frenetic when I'm shooting and we're just shooting pages and pages each day. And then we went in the studio to do this fall and then the stunt coordinator was running the day. So we filmed 48 frames in a day just on two cameras wow. falling through the glass roof. And it was just like, and I was just like, yeah, oh God, this is, this is like real filmmaking, you know? Just, yeah. Hardly shooting anything. Everybody sat down to eat, you know, like three times in the day, and everybody was dry and warm. Well, yeah, it's weird. Like when you're in a studio, it just feels completely, especially a day with a stunt coordinator, right? Because oh, there's like there's times where I don't feel like a real filmmaker, and like nothing dictates that more that when someone like a stunt coordinator who it kind of is the director for the day right because safety right so yeah 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 exactly i mean and we'd met we we'd kind of met him before and and because he's a stunt coordinator he kind of worked on mass on huge films he was i think he'd just come back from doing the bond film or or they must have done the bond film and but it was when Bond was the release was getting delayed and delayed and every yeah. way for it to be the film that was going to save cinema and everything. So it was not like every talking about and and he and he'd done that. So we were all a little bit like in awe of him. But he is such a Jamie. Was, he's such a good guy. You know, he had, he didn't he didn't need to take the job to come and work with us. But he lived nearby and he came along and he it was brilliant and it was. I think sometimes if you get that kind of outside person come into the team, it kind of up, ups the game a little bit. I yeah. Think. It just reminds people of that there's certain ways of working professionally that are there 
for a reason, not just for the sake of it. And if you're, you know, if a stunt woman is falling 15 feet through a glass roof, then you've got to be, you've got to be professional about it. You know, in some ways it does feel like shooting a home movie at times. And I don't know, yeah. in the best possible way. It's like I said to Mary last night watching your movie, I was just like, I said, this film, the, the, the brilliant thing about this is it's so much bigger than the sum of its parts. You know, I was thinking yeah. it'd be really interesting to see the rushes of this film. Yeah. Because it would be, it would, it, 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 it's not the film, you know, the, sh- the yeah. shoot, the shoot's not the film. The shoot is- yeah, you, you can't tell at all. Like when you're filming a more conventional movie, because again, they're so it's so stagey, right? Like a conventional movie. It's so different than what we did, right? Because <laughs> our stuff is just a bunch of pieces, right? You were the DOP on this, right? Yeah. Re- and you also edited it? Yeah. Yeah, same, right? Can you talk a bit about that? Because during film school, I don't know if you went to film school or not. It was always just oh, like there was always this kind of understanding that like, okay, so a a director is never supposed to edit their own film because uh, it's almost this weird thing of like, oh, a director is so sentimental about their work that they can't possibly compartmentalize being an editor and oh god forbid get rid of a scene if needed but when you're doing i i always felt like okay well that's a rule that applies to other people i make art so or like even more like let's talk about the dop thing first so why did you decide to be the dop and director you know i love cameras i'm not afraid to sort of say that I, I love the the equipment of making films. You know, I started making films with video cameras when I was a teenager and then and Super 8 cameras. You know, I got into making film because I love cameras. I take a lot of photos. And the camera that I use, I I can it's that's 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 the camera that well one of the cameras that I use. It's not the oh, one wow. that you shot on. But you know that's it. It's and it's so simple and I and I kind of know it inside out. And I, I shoot with it all the time. And if I'm not shooting with that, I'm shooting with a Super 8 camera. Um, these are, these are, you know, they're not cameras that you can get a video tap from and run a monitor from. So I don't, I don't want to be distanced from, from the camera. And I can, in some ways I kind of fell into it a little bit because I, sh- I made a short film or a 44 minute long film and shot it on black and white. 16 mil neg and I hand processed the negative and I post synced it and I shot it myself and I did it out of necessity really. And it just reminded me how much I love just being on the camera and also how quickly the production could work if I was the DOP, you know, mm. things w- were very quick. They weren't slowed, slowed down by having this constant dialogue with somebody else, which I think could be, you know, obviously is really productive, but if you're working on a tight schedule with not much money, you've got to design a process that fits those circumstances. So we both did movies that are obviously off the beaten path. With that comes the fact that when it it comes out, there's going to be a certain segment of the audience who takes it very strangely. Can you speak like, can you speak to that as far as like, obviously it's it's had the UK release and played a few festivals outside of that. 
Can you talk about the audience reaction to the film and how it maybe either conflicted with what you were trying to say or maybe didn't and was exactly what you would like? Can you talk about that? We've had decent positive reviews. You know, we've had some amazing reviews and some more kind of lukewarm reviews, predominantly positive. The response I've had when I've been out on the on the road with the film has been really positive. You know, Q and A's and stuff like that. But you don't, you don't tend to get the the people who don't like it coming up and telling you. Yeah. But, it's, but I do. They you know, save all that for social media. Constantly aware of is that the audience is sophisticated. Yeah. The audience is incredibly sophisticated. And, and I'm, and I, and I count myself, you know, I'm a, I'm an audience member much more often than I am a filmmaker, you know, so yeah. I'm, I'm more of an audience member than I am a filmmaker. And I know that I want to be challenged. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I want to watch something that isn't challenging, but a lot of the time I want to watch something that, that plays long after the film is finished in my head. All the greatest, all of my favorite films still play in my head now because I'm still making sense of them. They're not, they're not complete. They've got space for the audience and they're, they've got to be two way communication. There's got to be, if, you know, if cinema is really communication, by definition, that has to be two way. So the audience needs to, be projecting meaning and understanding onto the film. Sometimes I've had like, a couple of awkward moments in Q and A's where people have said, they put up their hands and said, well, what does it mean? And, and most of the time it, uh, you know, it's quite funny. And I just say, well, I, I'm not going to tell you, you know, but some oh, people I'll say that and they say, no, you need to tell me, how can you stand up there and not tell us what that film means? It's like, well, this is the way that I'm communicating. You know, if I could, if I was happy articulating it verbally or just with language, I would have written it as a short story and not gone to the hassle of making a film. No. But I want to play to the strengths of the of film. You know, I want to tap into the, the the language of dreams, the language of the subconscious, all of that kind of stuff. And I cannot articulate it simply. So quite often the reviews or comments and stuff on Letterboxd, which have been more negative, have been linked to wanting answers. And that, and that doesn't, bother me, you know, I don't get upset about those reviews at all. I mean, I, I, I looked at it last night for the first time in weeks and there was like, I did a screen grab of it, of like the star ratings. And it was like in a row, there was a five star, three star, one star. And I was like, yeah, I did a shot of it. It was like, well, that sums up. And then I looked on your, on the Skin of a Ring one. Same, right? You're like the same. Yeah. Like the stuff, like for Bay, my previous film, it was all constantly sort of like four four and a half, some five. It was all kind of up there. And um, and <laughs> with this one, it's just absolutely all over the place. You say, well, yeah. actually, what, what more can you ask for, really? Yeah. I find the people asking for answers are fewer and far between because I think the audience, into, like most audience members, I feel intuit that this is a movie that like doesn't necessarily have an answer. And I think even further than that, there's almost, I feel like speaking for my movie, they don't want me to say what it's about, right? Like they like that it's up for interpretation. And I will say too, I wouldn't call your film challenging, right? Like bad movies are challenging. Like your movie wasn't challenging at all. Like it's just, but, but that's just because I didn't take it as a challenge, right? Yeah. Like, 
like again, it felt like music and and like in the best possible way. Like this movie isn't challenging. I would never want to watch a challenging movie a second time. And as soon as I finished yours, I wanted to watch it a second time. So I would say this. I would say the same about yours. And the more we talk about it, the more I I want to watch it again. And I think I've got no. I think I've got no desire or in- inclination at all to ask you any questions about you meaning. Know, I think our movies, they really only work either at home in the dark at 2 a.m. or in a, in a theater, right? Because in a theater, you can take it in the same, the same way, right? So, Mark, do you want to elaborate on that, on why yours is would be so good theatrically. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think for, with my film, you ha- you have to go with it. You have to engage with it, and you have to be present when you're mm-hmm. watching it because there is so much space, and it's about an atmosphere. And and from what I mean, I I, I can't watch it objectively, but from, from the overwhelming number of responses for me, like positive responses to the film, have been people where it's really got under their skin, and the atmosphere is really connected and haunted and disturbed people and I think you need to be in you need to be able to get into that state and it's easier to do that and much more effective and much more powerful if you're in a cinema obviously just scale in terms of the size of the screen and and the 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 way that the audio works are the, are the obvious things most people the, the the positive response comes from watching it on a big screen I think with and with your with your movie watching it last night you know I I'm sort of a, a slight slightly halfway between watching on a small screen and a big screen. We've got a, a big screen at home and a projector and, you know, quite ruthless in the way that we watch films, you know, all other distractions are are gone, you know. Yeah. I think being in that black box of a cinema where as soon as the lights go down and the outside world disappears, that's so in keeping with your film. You know, the outside world doesn't exist. You know, the thing when you go to a, like an afternoon screening, and you're so yeah. caught up in the film, and then you go outside and you go, oh, fucking hell, it's forgotten. It's right out. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, I think that fits with your 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 film very well. And, and there were certain resonances between um, the house that you were in, that you shot in, and, and our house, you know, the wood yeah. and stuff like that. We It was quite an immersive experience because we got the, the wooden shutters, which... Uh, the screen pulls down in front of, so they were they were below the screen and stuff like this. It's like this is all you know. Again, it sounds like I'm I'm arguing to uh, watch it in a house, but I'm, I'm not. I just that that kind of black box, that isolation. I think is you know it's so important. You wouldn't you wouldn't watch a theater show you know in your house while other stuff's going on. It's all about. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it, right? Like you wouldn't watch a play in your living room or what no. you can't but like what the phone what the phone's ringing and you know and you're making a cup of tea and people are coming in and out you've got to it, it's it's sacred it's sacred and, it, and it's important i think if you know if one good thing came out of the sort of lockdowns and stuff in the uk it was a kind of like the understanding that watching stuff at home is fine but the cinematic experience is it's different it's not you yeah. can't substitute it with something else things that are visceral yeah like horror, you know, are always going to be elevated by seeing them in the in the screen. Because if you're, you know, if you if you come out, you know, terrified, then that that exhilaration of terror and being scared 
continues because you've got to get yourself home. You know, you don't just walk upstairs and get in the bed. You're out in the real world and you're taking this with you. And I think that's yeah. that's the kind of full experience of it. It's almost like going to church, right? Like, you know, like neon should almost have that as their canned, like, this is the answer. Like, why see it in the theater? It's like, remember lockdown and you couldn't, right? Like the local art house here, when they first reopened, they had a handful of like hits to just get people back in the theater. So they had like, they had, I think The Shining, I think they had Robocop. And then they also had Night of the Living Dead, which I told all my friends, we have to go see Night of the Living Dead because that one's actually in the public domain. So 100% of the money goes to the mm-hmm. theater. And, and that was my only real reason. I'd seen it at home a billion times. Night of the Living Dead, again, too, that's an interesting one to watch in a country house, let me tell you. But so seeing it in the theater for the first time, it was like, I almost started crying, right? Like it was, it was an amazing thing. Like, oh, I miss this so much. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. It was great to, it was great to meet you, Colin. I'm pretty glad I waited until last night to see the film because it really is still with me and it's just a brilliant piece of work. And it was so nice meeting you, Mark. It really was like an honor, right? Like, I don't want to sound like floofy there, but like, you know, like less than not even a year ago, I was doing data entry for minimum wage. And now I'm being approached by a major distributor to talk to the director of, of Enos Maine. So like, this is a big deal. I just have to say too, I was so jealous of just the visual of lichen which I've always found kind of disgusting to look at on a body was so striking to me. I just had to point that like, good job on that, right? Like as far as almost a, like a little bit of body horror in the folk horror there. Well, you know, likewise, you know, I so thought film, film was magnificent and such a breath of fresh air and Same. truly, truly, truly horrifying. And I, I can't wait. Same. Can't wait to see the next one. So, yeah. Thank you. Same. Yeah, thank you so much. Keep in touch. Thanks so much for listening to a special episode of Magic Hour, brought to you by The Litterbox Show. If you had the time, maybe consider rating the podcast on Spotify or leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It helps spread the word about the show. Thanks to our crew, to AJ and Slim for editing, to Sophie Shin for the episode transcript, to Neon for putting this conversation together, and to you for listening. The Letterbox Show is a Tape Deck production. Four Faves is returning soon. It sounds like the end of a James Bond movie. <laughs> the text and the, the back end of the movie. I mean, it's just as exciting and sexy, so... <laughs>